0: You are now listening to the December 30th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Let's Read the Bible, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Let's Read the Bible.
1: Hello, listeners. I am Nicole, the host of Let's Read the Bible. There is a saying, teach your children to catch fish, not just give them fish. It means that we should not only focus on giving our children what they need right now, but also help them be able to live their lives in the future. However, it seems that many parents today do not teach their children how to catch fish, but rather they seem to be fulfilling everything their children demand and want from an early age. They may even consider this as loving their children. But who can teach us how to truly love our children? Is there anyone who can show us what true love for our children really means? In the Bible, in John four sixteen, it is said that God is love. He is the standard of love, and love is everything to Him. He is also our Father. Therefore, through our loving God, the Father, we can learn what true love for our children is. God loves sinners so much that He gave His only Son for us and made us His children. Will He fulfill all our demands? If true love for our children means fulfilling all their demands and giving them everything they ask for, then God would surely fulfill all our demands. However, God does not always respond to us in that way. He knows everything including what is best for us and therefore He gives us what is good and beneficial for us. Sometimes, we may be disappointed and even doubt if God really loves us, because He does not fulfill all our demands. However, as time goes by, we realize that God truly loves us and did not allow us to have what we demanded, because it was not good for us. When we come to realize this, we become truly grateful. If we truly love our children, we will naturally give them what is good and beneficial for them. The author of Proverbs gives us advice and warning with that thought in mind. In particular, in Proverbs 13.24, he talks about love for our children. Whoever spares the rods hates their children but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. Of course, in this day and age, physically punishing our children is culturally difficult. However, the essence of the proverb is still something we should remember. That is, raising your kids by spoiling them is not love. Rather, the Bible says that it is hating your child if you don't discipline them properly. Those who love their children discipline them diligently, which means getting up early and disciplining them without delay. If you truly love your children, you will guide them to the right path, and sometimes discipline is necessary for that. It is like how God disciplines us to lead us on the right path. As it says in hebrews twelve seven, "Endure hardship as discipline." God is treating you as His children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? So, just as God leads us on the right path, we must also educate our future generations to follow the right path. Let's read Proverbs chapter 13, 1 to 25 together. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. From the fruit of his mouth, a man eats what is good, but the desire of the treacherous is for violence. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. The righteous hates falsehood, but the wicked bring shame and disgrace. Righteousness guards him, whose way is blameless, but sin overthrows the wicked. One pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. The light of the righteous rejoice, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. By insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but he who reverses the commandment will be rewarded. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life, that one may turn away from the snares of death. Good sense wins favor, but the way of the treacherous is their ruin. Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool flaunts his folly. A wicked messenger falls into trouble, but a faithful envoy brings healing. Poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is honored. A desire fulfilled is sweet to the soul, but to turn away from evil is an abomination to fools. Whoever walks with the wise become wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers once. We just read Proverbs 13. God bless you. Goodbye.
2: Praise the Lord, His mercy. Omniscient, all knowing, he counts not their son thrown into a sea without bottom or shore Our sins they are many, his mercy is more. He lavished on us His blood was the pain His life was the cause We stood neath the dead We could never afford
0: next is a sermon by Pastor Timothy Keller of Gospel and Life. Today's topic is Abraham and the Torch. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Timothy.
3: The passage on which the teaching is based is Genesis chapter 15 verses 1 to 21. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and they will be enslaved and mistreated four hundred years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, and Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girishites, and the Jebusites. And this is God's word. Now we go back to a series we've been doing and we're looking in the Bible at Persons, people, who have had unusual encounters with God, direct encounters with the raw presence of God, and almost in every case, extremely strange and sort of uh, awe-inducing narratives. Most of them are pretty famous. Uh, There's two places where Moses has a face-to-face encounter with the holy, with the presence of God, and one of them is uh, the burning bush, very famous. Another one is where he's up on the mountain and God puts him in the cleft of the rock and the glory of God passes by. Uh, another one, of course, we've already looked at is Jacob wrestling with, uh, with God, wrestling in the dark. Uh, another one which we haven't looked at yet, but it's coming is Isaiah who comes into the, the temple and, uh, and he sees the Lord high and lifted up and there's smoke and there's earthquake and everything is trembling. These are all, um, oh, I don't know how to put it. I say they're, they're all sensational. and and perhaps as a result of that they're all very, very uh, famous. But this situation in which Abraham, one of the great figures of history, has a face-to-face meeting with God, it's one of the strangest, it's one of the weirdest of all the stories in the Bible, and it's very, very seldom looked at. It's not very well known, it's not very famous. We're trying to remedy that. Let's just get right into it and you'll see the relevance of it pretty quickly. In verse 1, it says, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. Now, right away, that you know, raises the question, why is Abram afraid? What's going on? And so we have to step back for just a moment, and we have to ask ourselves, who is Abraham, and what is his relationship with God, and why is he afraid, and why is he struggling, and so on. Now, if you stand back and look at Abram, you see that history of Abraham and uh, God starts back in Genesis chapter 12. And when you read all these chapters in the, this book of the Old Testament, you will see that there's four great crises or thresholds, four great incidents in which God comes in some way or another to Abraham. In the very first one, it's in Genesis chapter 12, in the very beginning, where and God refers to it here in verse seven. And he says, I came to you in the first time when Abraham was living in Ur of the Chaldees. And God comes to Abraham and this is what he says. He says, Abraham, get out. Get out of your country. It's amazing the way God just, you know, he just rattles them off. Get out of your country, get out of your people, and get out of your family. He says, leave your country, leave your people, leave your father's house. He says, I want you to leave everything that's familiar to you. And I want you to go, he says, get out to a land, a place that I will tell you of. And the book of Hebrews says, so Abraham got out, not knowing whither he went. And that was the first Then later on, when he made this promise to Abraham, he says, Abraham, I want you to get out because I will make a great nation of you. And out of your descendants, out of this great nation, will come one through whom all the peoples of the world will be blessed. Now that means, since Abraham got this promise that he would be a great nation, his descendants would be a great nation, that meant, he understood this, that that meant two things. That first of all, God would give him a child. God would have to give him a son if he was going to be a great nation, and his descendants were going to be this great people, out of whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. And secondly, uh, he also not only would need a child, he'd need a land. He would have to have a, a place. And so here in Genesis 15, he comes and says, will I have a child? Will I get this land? And God says, yes, but if you look rather carefully, he says, I'll give it to your descendants. If you read all the stuff he says, he says, I'll give it to your descendants. And the fact of the matter is, Abraham never got any land. Abraham never owned any land in his entire life except a little piece of land in which he and his wife were buried. So you see, God says, come out, I will give you a land. But then he says, and, uh, uh, well, not exactly you, uh, your descendants, about 400 years from now. Then in uh, Genesis 17, Abram comes to God and he says, Lord God, you say you're going to give me a child. We've been waiting for 25 years. I'm 99, my wife is 90. And the Lord says, and? (laughs) Just wait. And then finally a child is born, Isaac. And when we get to Genesis 22, God says to Abram, Abram, take thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest, and offer him up as a sacrifice to me kill him. Now, you see, the best way I've ever heard this schematized, and I can't remember who, but I remember once uh, hearing a minister say, he says, well, let me schematize Abram's life. It went like this. God says, I'm going to send you out. And Abram says, where? And God says, I'll tell you later, right now, just go. And then he says, I will give you a land. And Abram says, where? And God says, I'll tell you later, just wander. And then he says, I'll give you a child. And Abraham says, how? And God says, I'll tell you later, just wait. And then finally, God sends a child, and he says, Abraham, kill your child. And Abraham says, why? And God says, I'll tell you later, walk up the mountain, take the knife, take the fire. And in every situation, Abraham passed that threshold and he triumphed. A very normal guy, a very ordinary person, with lots of weaknesses as you can see if you read the entire biography, the entire account, but at those critical places he faced those unbelievable circumstances and he triumphed. Abraham led a big life. That's the best way I can put it. Abraham led a life of mastery. Circumstances did not master him. He mastered them. Life did not push him around. He mastered life. You know, one of my favorite frightening lines is the place in Macbeth where Shakespeare says, each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven on the face. That's life. Each morning, there's new widows, there's new orphans, there's new mourners, new pain, new every day every morning circumstances come at you it comes at you now what are you gonna do what's gonna happen either they're gonna knock you over either they're gonna master you or you're gonna master them how can you master them how can you be like Abraham because see that's what Abraham did every one of these things that came in all kinds of circumstances disappointments disillusionments contradictions he had a life like a real life at every point he was able to live a big life a life of mastery or another way to put it is a life of faith because you see what did he do here's the secret in verse 6 it says Abraham believed the Lord and this was the secret you see it's one thing to believe in the Lord and that's very good but what Abraham did was he believed the Lord you see that see of course in order to believe the Lord you have to believe in the Lord but you can believe in the Lord and not believe the Lord what Abraham did was he trusted the promises he trusted the things God said. No matter what the circumstances, he took hold of them and he trusted them and he based his life on them. And as a result, he lived this big life and so can you. You see, there's this very interesting passage in Hebrews chapter six, verse 17, that refers to Genesis 15, as we're gonna see in a minute. It refers back to the fact that God came to Abraham and made a promise. And in Hebrews six seventeen. Uh, we read, it says, God wants to make the unchanging nature of his purpose clear to the heirs of what was promised. So he confirmed it with an oath that we who have fled to take hold of this hope may be encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. That's a wonderful passage. We have this hope like an anchor for the soul. Now that's what Abram had. Abram took God's promise. He didn't just believe in God, he believed God, and he used it as an anchor. Now, the reason that uh, the anchor is used here as a metaphor, uh, in Hebrews 6, it says, if you, what, what is your hope? What is your hope? What is the anchor of your soul? What is it that really makes you feel like, boy, I've got confidence to live life? If it is whatever, if it is your job, if it is your looks, if it is your talents, if it is a friend, do you have a friend who's an anchor? The, the, the one thing that makes you feel like that, that will always be there. No, no friend will always be there. No family will always be there. No talent will always be there. Your looks certainly will not always be there. Whatever it is that you put your anchor down into, if it's a circumstance, it's like putting it in the water. All this stuff is water. Everything but the promise of God is water. It's ebbing and flowing. If it looks like it's flowing now, it'll ebb later, that's the way water is. You have got no hope unless you can put it beneath the water into something that's not water. If you anchor your life into circumstances, nothing. You'll be passed all around. This says the only way that you've got hope is if you anchor it into something that's not a circumstance. Something that doesn't change. Something that's heavier than heaven and earth. Something that will outlast heaven and earth. Not only will it outlast your uh, your friends, not only will it outlast your looks, your abilities, your job, it will even outlast the rocks at the bottom of Lake Erie. It's the promise of God. And Abram was able to get the anchor of his heart down that far. How did he do it? Well, it happened one day like this. See, in verse 8, he says, and here's, this just goes to show you that he's a human being like all of us. God had given him these promises, and he says, I will give you this land, I will make you a great nation, I will bless all the earth through you, I will give you a child, and I want you to live as if those things are gonna happen. No matter what it looks like, no matter what the circumstances, put your anchor down into that. And what does Abram say? He says, okay, he says in verse 8, but how can I know? How can I know? Boy, there's, there's a guy like us. And God says, let me help you get the anchor down. And this is what he does. The first thing is, so the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, bring me a goat, bring me a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Now what in the world is he doing? And what's interesting here is that Abram, it says, Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. What is going on? Now the reason this sounds so difficult to understand is because we don't live in that day and time. Abraham wasn't even really given instructions. God says, bring me these animals and Abraham immediately knew what to do with them. He came and he cut them in pieces except the small birds and he laid them out. What's going on? He was doing something that everybody in those days and times would have known. But you and I don't. And so we have to understand. You see, how did they sign a contract? How do we sign a contract? Yesterday I did a wedding. And at the end of any wedding in New York City, uh, at the end of the wedding, you get out a piece of paper, it's called a license, and the bride and the groom sign it. And then the, there's two witnesses that sign it. And then I, the minister, sign it. In a sense, at the wedding, you get up and you make these promises. You say, I take you in plenty and in want, and in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. But you see, what if one of the partners says, how do I know you will deliver these things? How will I know, O sovereign groom? How do I know, O sovereign bride, that you will give these things to me? And you know what the bride and the groom do? They say, I'll sign. I'll sign. Because in our culture, when you sign, there's consequences if you break your word. Frankly, if you haven't signed, there's no consequences, except maybe the black eye. Uh, of that one person, but there's no real consequences until you sign. So some say, how do I know that you are going to give us this? You say, I'll sign, but not back then, because you see, Abram lived not in a written culture, but in an oral storytelling culture, and the way they made contracts was actually a lot more effective than the way we do, because what they would do is whenever they made a contract and someone says, okay, you promised me this, how do I know you will do it? The way they would put themselves in a position where there were consequences for the brokenness of their word is that they would act out the consequence of unfaithfulness right before everyone. So, for example, let me, let me read you something that's pretty interesting. This is in Jeremiah 34. In Jeremiah 34, verse 18, we read this. This is what the Lord says. You have not obeyed me. The men who violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms they made... I will treat them like the calf they cut in two and walk between the pieces. The leaders of Judah and Jerusalem who walked between the pieces, I will hand them over to their enemies, and their dead bodies will become food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. Now, do you realize what he's saying? In those days, the way you took an oath was not by signing. What would that mean? Here's what you would do, is you would take an animal, you would slay it, you would cut it put it down on the ground and you would walk between the pieces and this is what you were saying you're saying if I do not do everything that I am promising now may I be cut off may I be destroyed may my flesh lay on the ground to feed the birds of the air and the beasts of the field that's what you're doing a fairly effective way don't you think you see vivid but when you did it you were bound you acted out the curse now When Abraham was told, bring me all these pieces, he immediately knew what was going on. This was a covenant ratification ceremony. This was the making of a contract. He knew right away and he figured, verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Now this is actually a little hard to understand. Does it mean he actually went into sleep and he dreamed about it? On the other hand, down here in verse 17, it says, Then when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch. Evidently, it's almost like the darkness came over him. A darkness of heart, a darkness of mind. It was overwhelming. It crushed him to the ground. There was this unbelievable darkness, this unbelievable horror, this unbelievable terror. It was a dreadful darkness. And it came over him, and it put him almost into a kind of trance. And out of that dark cloud, God spoke about dark things. And he says, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers. And he he explains to Abraham the history of his descendants, that they are going to be slaves. They're going to be exiles. They're going to be away from this land. They won't come back for 400 years. But then, finally, in verse 17, and when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking pot and a blazing torch appeared Now, this smoking pot and blazing torch, nobody quite knows exactly how to translate this. It's very hard to know, but here's what we know. Something appeared, and these are the same words, the words for smoke and the words for blaze, and it's the same words used to describe the top of Mount Sinai when God came down on it years later, and the same words that were also used to describe the pillar of God's presence. The fiery cloud, you see, the pillar of God's presence, his raw Shekinah glory, sometimes looked like smoke. It was called a cloudy pillar. Sometimes it looked like fire. But here's what it was. It was severe. It was, it was the presence of God. And it was a pain to even look at it. And the best one I've ever heard to describe this was one minister who put it this way. He says, at that minute, suddenly, in the midst of the darkness, a searing streak of lightning appeared and held its shape. It spewed fire and smoke and sparks. It was the presence of God. But it wasn't just the presence of God that astonished Abram. but what it did, look, verse 17, it passed between the pieces. It went down the aisle made by the pieces. And here's the reason this was so strange. This is so incredible. This is the gospel. This is the whole gospel. There is no place in the New Testament that gets as thorough going as this. Here's what's going on. You see, there's always two problems with trusting God, with living confidently. There's always two problems with living a confident big life. Why is it that you and I aren't living the same kind of life that Abraham? There's always two problems. The first problem is, Lord, how can I know about you? See, When Abraham says, Lord, how can I know? How can I know all these great things are going to happen? How can, I, how can I trust your promise? How can I know about you? How can I know you'll come through? And it's absolutely astonishing that what God does is he appears and he passes between these pieces. Do you now know what he's saying? Do you know what he's saying to Abraham? Do you know what he's saying to you? He is saying, I have promised to bless you, Abraham. I have promised to be your God and to bring salvation to the world. I have promised to bless you. And if I don't do what I say, may my immutability experience mutation. May my immortality suffer mortality. May my infinity suffer limitation infinitude. May my power suffer powerlessness. May the impossible become possible. May I be cut off. May I be destroyed. May my body be ripped to pieces. God's saying this. Now, if you think that's amazing, it is. But that's not all. Because Abraham looks at God at this point, in a sense, and says what most of us say. Wow, all right. But that's not the only problem I've got with living a big life. Lord, how do I know about you? Fine, you've made this promise. How amazing, how wonderful, that you've passed between the pieces, that you would make a promise like this. But you know, I guess when it comes right down to it, Lord, I guess I never really thought you would break your promise. Not really. The real problem is, how do I know, Lord, about me here you've given me this wonderful promise and you say you're gonna do all this but I don't I don't think I can come through you said you will be my people I will be your God I believe you'll be my God but how am I ever gonna be your person I will let me down I will let you down you will finally get tired of me you will finally say how many times will he break will she break the promise that's it This is the 50th time. That's it. Finally, you will give up on me. How can I know about you? Well, now I know because you passed between the pieces. But how do I know about me? And here's the thing that Abraham knew and that we'll all know in a minute once we realize this. God walked through the pieces alone. He did not say, Abraham, now you do it. And let me tell you, this is absolutely, absolutely unique and stunning because we know this from history and archaeology that whenever a king would enter into a covenant relationship with a, a vassal, a lesser king or a conquered king or a servant, whenever a king would enter into a covenant relationship with a, with a servant, either both the king and the servant would go through the pieces, both would say, if I don't do my part, that I, may I be as eaten by the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, or just the servant would go through. But when the king goes through by himself, This is what God is saying. God is saying, Abraham, I'm gonna go through for both of us. This is the gospel.
4: in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in Him no other, my soul is satisfied in Him alone.
2: We fade and die. Fame, youth, and beauty do we buy? life eternal.
0: are now listening to
3: Unity in Christ, the English hour of our broadcast program. Here at Heart & Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to aid in the spiritual maturity of our listeners. Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through internet broadcasting or through our CD delivery program. Now you can find all the programs of Heart & Soul on podcast. All you have to do is search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries to listen to or download this week or past week's programs. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast.
0: The following program is called Equipping the Saints.
5: Hello, heart and soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Well, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you'll recognize that sometimes it can be difficult, that instantly you have those who are opposed to you, maybe even in your own families, whatever it might be, and there are those who might even be hostile toward you. The Lord Jesus said, don't be surprised if the world hates you. It hated me first. I'm just paraphrasing from John. The reality is a man apart from Christ doesn't want Christ and hates Christ. And so when you come to faith, you're going to have opposition. You're going to have difficulty. There's the temporal sufferings, but there's the glories to follow. Now, as we go through those trials, they can be discouraging because there's all kinds of different manifestations of how opposition can come in our lives and difficulties and trials. And the Lord God is a gracious God. He doesn't want us to crumble under the pressure. He doesn't want us to fall apart. He doesn't want us to get shaken up. He wants to encourage us that we will be able to stand in the midst of those difficulties. And so we're going to see today how we can endure the trials that following Jesus brings. And we're going to see that as we thank the Lord and think about our glorious salvation in Christ, putting the word in our hearts, that God uses that to encourage us. Turn to your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 15. Now, as we come to the book of 2 Thessalonians, just a reminder of the context, the Apostle Paul was writing a church that is less than a year old in the faith. You'll remember that Acts chapter 17 and also 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 reveals the conversion of these Thessalonians. They were pagans, they were idolaters, they heard the word of God, and they turned to God from idols to serve the living and one and only true God and to wait for his son who delivers us from the wrath to come. They got saved. And when they heard the word of God, chapter 2 of First Thessalonians, they received it not as the word of men, for what it really is, the word of God which performs its work in you who believe. And the apostle Paul, as he was sharing the word of God, was run out of town, run out of Thessalonica, and he was concerned about them. He was concerned about their faith, having been with them just for a short time, having been then orphaned from them. And so he sent Timothy to see how they're doing in the faith. And he got a report back. And it's after this report he shares this first letter of Thessalonians to them. And he clears up some issues that they were confused about. And then in less than a couple months, probably, he wrote Second Thessalonians because it's very clear that chapter one of Second Thessalonians speaks of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And there was only a short window that they were together. And so it's probably within a year. They're still less than a year old in the faith. And there are some other issues that have come up that Paul is concerned about for the faith of these Thessalonians. Indeed, in chapter 1 of Second Thessalonians, we see that they were suffering greatly for their faith. You know, Jesus said, you know, you count the cost. You don't go out and just build something, not counting the cost and understanding what's needed. Otherwise, you're going to be laughed at when you don't complete it. The reality is there is a temporal cost to following Jesus Christ. And that cost comes in many different ways. One is persecution. It's a temporal cost. And these Thessalonians, they were suffering at the hands of their countrymen. They were suffering for coming to Christ. And the Apostle Paul shares that, and he shares in chapter 1 that God hasn't missed a beat, that those who are bringing about this persecution, those who we see in chapter 2 have rejected the gospel, rejected Christ, that they're going to pay the penalty. They're going to pay the penalty for their sinfulness, and we see that Christ is going to come ultimately and be glorified, and that his saints are going to marvel in that, that there's the sufferings for the glories to follow. And then we saw in chapter 2, as we're looking today, and we'll read through part of that, that there were some bad guys out there in the church. Oh, really? Yes, bad guys in the church. They creep in unnoticed. Jude says certain men have crept in unnoticed. And they come in, they sneak in, they distort the Word of God. And they try to shake up those who are in the faith. And there were those who were doing that, and we'll read this in a minute. But they were saying, in essence, to these Thessalonians that the day of the Lord has come. And we've studied this in many times, many different portions, so you can get the CDs. But for the Thessalonians, that would shake them up. They're in their trials, and the day of the Lord has come. God's judgment upon the earth, wait a second. He's supposed to come for us first and deliver us before the wrath to come. Something's wrong. And so Paul has to correct that and share that, hey, you're okay, guys. Don't be quickly shaken. Don't be tossed around. The day of the Lord, God's wrath upon this earth before Christ comes personally, will not come unless that apostasy comes and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the Antichrist. We've talked all about that, we've gone through that, and we've seen that, and we're going to just review that very briefly. But in our passage today, he moves to encourage these believers, to encourage them because their destiny is not the destiny of those who have rejected Christ. Okay, so with that in mind, turn to Second Thessalonians chapter two, and I'm going to read up to our passage. And again, we've gone through about three or four sermons already in this chapter, and so a lot of it is kind of complex, but it's not complex, but it is. So just if you need to review that, you can get those CDs. But our passage hinges on what we've studied already. So I'm going to read up to it. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse one. And it says here. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Hey, you know, chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, you know the Lord's going to come for you. He's going to gather you together. You know that. He says, in regards to that, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, that's counterfeit, to the effect the day of the Lord has come. Don't get shaken up if someone shares that to you. It's not true. And he's going to explain why. We've seen this already. Let no one deceive you in any way, for it, that's the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy comes first. When God's day of wrath and judgment comes upon this earth, the earth is going to have to have turned completely against him first. The apostasy is a complete turning away. There's going to be a wholesale turning away of those who would name the name of Christ. They're going to turn away. They're going to reject that. They're going to turn. The apostasy comes first and that he says the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God and object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple, displaying himself as being God. That's the Antichrist. Okay, we talked all about that. Do you not remember while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Paul's like, hey, I was with you for three weeks. I was telling you about this stuff. It's not too complex. Here's what God has said. Here's what's going to happen. And he says here, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains him will do so until he is taken out of the way or out of the midst. You see, Satan's unchained evil, in a sense, is restrained right now. It's restrained. God is restraining it. But he's restraining it through the church, through his spirit, in his people. There is a restraint on evil. But that restraint will be gone when God takes his people, when he comes to gather them up to himself. And when that happens, all hell will break loose. And as we've seen, this man of lawlessness will ultimately Declare himself to be God, the Antichrist, okay? We went through all that, a lot of scriptures. But notice, he says here, And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all powers, signs, and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. There's a time coming in this world where sin and evil is going to be dealt with directly. God is allowing it to go on right now because he's unwilling that any should perish. If he was to judge your sin and evil before you got saved, you would be judged and you wouldn't be able to be saved. He's gracious. He's patient. But there's a time when the world will, in a wholesale sense, will turn away from the Lord after God's people have been removed, taken away. There'll be some remnant that gets saved. But in a wholesale sense, the world will rebel against the Lord and the Antichrist will be in charge, will have that all the stuff we've talked about, and that's when Christ will come, slay his enemies and the beast, and establish his kingdom. But it has to get to the worst it's going to get. And that's the day of the Lord. We're not going to go through it. And so Paul's explaining that. Thessalonians, don't get shaken up. You're not going through it. And so he says here, with all power, signs, and false wonders, with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. You see, God's a gracious God, and He announces the truth. The truth is that we're sinners, and that we need a Savior, and that He sent His Son Jesus Christ, He took on human flesh, and He went to the cross, and He bore our sins in His body on the cross, in our place. God requires death for sin. God requires the wages of sin is death. And if Christ didn't come, then we would all die in our sins and we would pay the penalty for our sins forever and ever. But God sent His Son. He loved us so much. And he paid the penalty for us. And if you're willing to humble yourself, which God says to every man, declares to every man at all to repent, and you repent and trust in Christ, you will be forgiven. You will be given the righteousness of Christ. But if you reject that, reject the love of the truth so as to be saved, if you don't believe you're a sinner in need of a Savior, you don't believe that Jesus is God who took on human flesh and died and rose from the dead, you don't call upon him, then you... And your lot is the lot of those in the day of the Lord that they might be judged who did not believe in the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. And so it's a pretty serious thing. We talked about it last time. And now we hear that. We go, wow, you know, some of your visitors are going, oh, this is a real exciting, encouraging sermon. Well, it is going to be encouraging because he's talking about the lot of those who are not the Thessalonian church. He's talking about those who've rejected Christ. If you rejected Christ, then yes, this is a very, very serious thing. But now he's going to move and talk to the Thessalonians in contrast and say, Hey, but for you guys, this is what awaits you. And this is what you need to do in the midst of this difficulty. And here's our passage. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this He called you through our gospel, that you might gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. And as I mentioned, the Thessalonians were greatly suffering. And the Lord wants to encourage them. And so how can we be encouraged? I think, first of all, we need to be giving thanks for what God has done for us. We need to be thankful. Notice in our passage here, verse 13, and we need to be thankful always for our salvation. But we shall always give thanks to God for you, beloved brethren of the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. What a tremendous thing. Hey, They rejected the truth, they rejected the gospel, they chose to reject it, they're on their way to judgment, but we give thanks for you because God chose you to be saved. And you are saved, and you're being saved, and you will be saved, and we'll talk about that. In contrast to those who have rejected the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, those who will go through the horrifying, terrible day of the Lord if they're alive at that time, they're going to be deceived and then judged. They're going to be destroyed eternally in the punishment in the lake of fire, a horrifying fate. In contrast to them, we give thanks for you. We give thanks for you. He says, but we should always give thanks. The word is we're indebted. We're obligated. We're obligated in light of what God has done in you and what He's doing to give thanks to Him. We're obligated to always give thanks to to God for you brothers and sisters we've seen throughout the book of first thessalonians and second thessalonians paul was so thankful for their salvation thankful to god for saving them they were truly saved they weren't make believers they weren't phonies they weren't pseudo christians they really truly turned to god from idols they truly got saved He says we should always give thanks to God for you. And that thankfulness is for their salvation. We see that. And notice he shares a term of endearment, a term of love. Brethren, beloved by the Lord. The term beloved here is a perfect passive form of agape. What does that mean? It means that it's a love that comes from God. It's come already and it still is there. You were loved, done deal, and you still are loved, but it has nothing to do with you. It's God doing it to you. Beloved by the Lord. Beloved brethren by the Lord. Tremendous reality that salvation is based on the love of God. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life or everlasting life. John fifteen thirteen greater love has none than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. First John chapter four, verse nine, by this, the love of God was manifest in us that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. That means satisfaction. God satisfied with Jesus, not satisfied with your work, satisfied with Jesus's work. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. But God demonstrates His love for us. that Why were we yet sinners? Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live now, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave or delivered Himself up for me we are brethren beloved by the Lord Notice he says brethren it's a family relationship yes God created everyone yes he did but we are not in his family until we trust in Christ and we are adopted into his family we become his children And thus brothers and sisters of one another. A greater family than our physical family. Yes, how blessed is a physical family that you know each other. How much greater is the family in Christ? First John chapter 3, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. Wretched sinners, wicked hearts and minds, actions. Think about all the wicked stuff you've done. And he called us and he forgave us and we're in his family. What love is that? That's tremendous. So then salvation is tied up in the love of God and we are his children because of that love through Christ. So Paul is obligated to always give thanks to God for these beloved brethren. But why? Notice what he says, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Now, some notes may say the term from the beginning is the term first fruits, or some different manuscripts there. Definitely the first fruits of salvation, there's no doubt about that, in terms of coming in the new church and this after Christ rose from the dead, certainly. But I think it's better probably from the beginning. I think it fits the context better. From the beginning. He chose you from the beginning. Now wait a second, he chose you? Now we get into the sadly divisive topic of election. And unfortunately, it's divisive, but it shouldn't be divisive at all because God's Word just talks about it. But unfortunately, the many hyper-reformed type churches have made one doctrine the pinnacle of their theology, and they built everything else around it, and they have thus twisted other truths to line it up with one doctrine. Whenever one truth in Scripture is raised above others, then it causes error. And the reality is, yes, there is election here. We're going to see it, but that's in the context of also God's love for us and human responsibility to respond to the gospel. So we have here this statement, he has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. The term chosen here means simply that, to choose. And it's used in a few other places and it has the exact same meaning. In Hebrews chapter 11, it speaks of Moses choosing ill-treatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He made a choice. Passing pleasures of sin, ill-treatment with the people of God. He chose ill-treatment. Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, But if I am to live in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. Okay, that's one word. Now, it means to make a decision. Now, this is not the word that we get the word electos from, because there's another word that means to choose also that we see in other places. This one just means to choose, but it's a synonym. It means to choose. But we have seen in other places this idea of what we call election or God choosing. Turn to 1 Thessalonians, just one letter back. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 4, and this is after Paul gives thanks. After Paul gives thanks for their salvation, First Thessalonians chapter one verse four, knowing, brethren beloved by God. Notice you have this nearby same same thing, right? His choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You really got saved, so that's an affirmation. He chose you. That's what he's saying. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Now, this word is where we get our word electos. It's It speaks of the act of picking or choosing, and it implies a selection among others who are not chosen. That's what it means. And it occurs six times, and every time it occurs, it speaks of divine election upon human objects to bring them into a saving relationship with himself. It's spoken of the Apostle Paul after his conversion when the good Ananias in Acts 9 questions the Lord about Saul, this bad guy formerly, and he says, the Lord said to him, go, in response to Ananias, go for he is a chosen instrument, an elect instrument of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and sons of Israel. It's used four times in the book of Romans, clearly relating to God's independent choice of mankind in salvation. Now, a straightforward reading of Scripture, which cuts across the grain of man's pride, reveals that God chooses in advance who will be saved.
2: an hour that he is not near us. No, not one, no, not one. No night so dark, but his love can cheer us. No, not one, no, not find this friend forsake him no not one no not one poor sinner find that he would not take him no not one no not one Jesus knows all about our struggles he will guide him.